If you're trying to make any kind of meaningful, effective change in your life, you've come to the right place. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of We're Talking Shift. Today, my friends, we are going to go maybe just a little wild. Just stay tuned and pretty soon that will make perfect sense to you. As always, throughout this episode, we are going to lay more health shift on you and we're going to lay it on thick so that you can continue to up-level your health. I, uh, I hope that you are all feeling very energetic today because my guest is always full of energy and he drops wisdom bombs as fast as you can absorb them. So buckle up and let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Eric Edmeads. Eric is a massively successful entrepreneur and business coach. He is the creator of the Speaking Academy, which is one of the highest rated training programs in the world. He is also the founder of WildFit, which is Eric's flagship health program. WildFit is the most effective health transformation program on the market and has consistently been one of the highest rated programs on the Mind Valley platform. So without further ado, Eric, welcome to We're Talking Shift. Hey, Lori, really glad to be here. I'm, I'm excited. Good. Well, I'm excited to have you. I know that you are um, a, a quite the world traveler and you are a very busy man. So I'm uh, I'm super excited. I've been wanting to have you on the show for quite some time. I ran across you, um, gosh, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago when I was uh, watching a masterclass on Mind Valley. So there you have it. A little history. That sounds cool. So I want to talk a lot about, obviously, about health. That's that's always up for me, but it is seriously up for the entire world right now. Um, and I've been watching a lot of your uh, your posts recently on Twitter, especially. Uh -oh. uh, and I I think <laughs> very interesting. Um, I think it would be fun to kick this off, talking a little bit about sugar. Um, I've talked a about sugar on in the past, and I'll tell you what, I, I don't know that people still, with all the information that's out there, I just don't think that people still get how fundamentally horrible this product that is in just about everything that people are consuming is for them and how it's so foundational to so many health issues. I remember in about the mid 80s, when my children were babies, I read a book called Sugar Blues by William Dufty. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but that little book, Sugar Blues, changed my world. I completely shifted everything about health when I read that book. So it's, it's really, it impacted my eating lifestyle so much. So for 35 years, that has been foundational in how I, you know, fed my family, how I feed myself. Um, and I, and so it's just always been up for me. And you recently put out a pretty lengthy and very compelling post about sugar that of course got my attention. Um, it really spells out a lot of the, the factors um, that most people are unaware of. And I think it would be fun to touch on that. And by the way, so many interesting 
oddly interesting responses that you got to that post. I was reading through some of them and I was like, first of all, it's amazing how many people don't actually really read what you put out. It's like they see two words and then they respond to something that almost has nothing to do with what you just said. But that that aside, um, let's talk a little bit about about like, let's start with how the food industry is has really hijacked, um, you know, for profit, just everything that is pretty much out in the market in the stores. Um, and you did, um, you talked about a study and the hit piece on fat. I think those would be really great places to just dive into. Yeah, so I, I think my first comment on sugar is, I, I think you're absolutely right. People learn that it's not good for them, but on some level, they don't care. And and I and and I think one thing for people to remember is that um, there's a couple of really important things to remember. The one is that your brain isn't the only source of thoughts. Uh, you know, your 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 entire biome is basically a big democratic um, process, and and uh, and and so when you are eating lots of carbohydrate foods, you are changing your biome, you're changing your gut biome particularly, and you are breeding more sugar voters. And so the more carbs you're eating, the more craves you're stimulating. And so you can take somebody who's very like carb addicted and you can tell them all the stuff and they can know it and they can understand it and they, they can intellectualize it. But at the end of the day, the, the, the population is going to vote and it's gonna keep voting for sugar until something yeah. radical really changes. And, um, and the food industry knows that. They, they, they know that. And, and, and of course, they use sugar to boost their profitability. They use it very effectively. It's, 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 it's addictive. Um, it, uh, it, it, um, it triggers cravings. It stimulates appetite. So it's brilliant. If you think about it, I mean, I don't think there's any one single evil person working in the food industry. I think that capitalism and food production don't really marry well together. <laughs> and I'm a capitalist. Yeah. I, just, I just don't think that, that they marry well. In the same way that capitalism and pharma, pharma, pharmaceutical uh, mm -hmm. development isn't really ideal in a lot of ways, so yeah. um, so I think there's that. But but the, the particular tweet that I wrote, which is funny, I don't really, I, I'm not, I, I'm more, I pay more attention to Facebook and Instagram. But this last year during the pandemic, I started messing around on Twitter, and that thing that I wrote was by far the most popular thing I've ever written on Twitter. Um, but you're right, the replies were all over the place, and. Generally, when I'm on social media, I, I, I gauge, I never write thinking, oh, I'm going to lose followers or I'm going to gain followers. I don't care. I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just sharing what I'm sharing and, and so on. But the one thing I do notice is that if I have people attack me from both extreme ends of the position, I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very encouraged right? by that. And, yeah, you touched uh, and of course, a nerve. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you've touched a nerve and you've triggered the extremists. And, and, you know, one of my little silly favorite pocket expressions is that if you can't see the extremists at both ends, then you are one. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, because you should be able to see them off to your left and off to your right. And if you can't, then there's a problem. So that post yeah. triggered a lot of people because of course, what you ended up with is the, the, you know, um, the, the post, for example, mentioned that, um, uh, uh, if you ate properly, then you'd have a more robust immune system. So of course the pro-vaxxer people attacked me and said, you're talking about anti-vax, but then in another place, it says that if you are going to get vaccinated, then you need to have the proper nutrition to make sure your vaccine works. And so now the, 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 the anti-vaxxer people are hating on me and, and all this stuff, but, but <laughs> the, the truth of it is, and, and I, and unfortunately I, I have one friend of mine, like a loose friend of mine that I've done some consulting work for. And she saw the thread and wrote to me and said, the last thing we need is another conspiracy theory. And I wrote to her and I go, there's nothing in here that's a conspiracy theory. I simply have reported facts. Like there's not, I'm not, there's no conspiracy theory in it. So the short version, as you know, from the tweet is that in the fifties, 
Um, the, the prevailing science at the time indicated that the upsurge in heart disease was probably related to sugar consumption, that it was definitely correlative and probably strong enough correlation to suggest influence. And the sugar industry saw that for what it was, a comet. I mean, it was dangerous to them. They, they knew that if that information got out, it was dangerous. And so they enga engaged the services of two Harvard researchers um, to conduct a study. And I, I hate air quotes, but you, there's no other way to say study in that context. They, it wasn't a study. Um, and, 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 and what they did is they framed fat. They basically uh, took all of the um, harm that was being caused and blamed fat for it. And the part that I love most about that tweet series that I did was that there's a direct quote in there from a guy named Haas, who was the president at the time of the, Be uh, of the Sugar Growers Association. And he was speaking at the Beet Growers Association conference. And he, and he laid it out. He goes, the new science indicates that the arterial uh, blockage is being caused by cholesterol and heavy fat. And now that this science has come out, you know, it, people are going to surrender their fat calories to, to the carb industry. And so we're going to have a huge upswing. And he spells it out. But the part mm -hmm. that he never tells anybody is that they bought the study. He doesn't mention that part. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're now living with two really important and dangerous legacies as a result of that. A huge upswing in sugar intake. Sugar intake at the turn of the 18th century, as we went into the 18th, 1800s, was at about four pounds per American. By the turn of the 19th, into the 1900s, it was 40 pounds per American. And now it is 154 pounds per American. And no one American notices that happening because it happens slowly across the generations. If you were to, yeah. can you imagine taking somebody from 1700 and feeding them any of what we eat? They'd spit that shit out. They'd be like, what the hell? It's like so sweet. But equally, can yeah. you imagine taking somebody from today and taking them back to 1700 and having them eat that food? They'd be like, they, it, it would have no flavor to them because their taste buds have been so bombarded. So yeah. that's like- even hijacked. One. Hijacked. Mm -hmm. That's legacy number yeah. one. And legacy number two is that that same study formed the, the substrate of the low fat movement. And, and the anger yes. toward fat, which of course created Crisco and a bunch of fake fats and, and had people remove one of the most important nutritional, you know, one of their most essential nutrients out of their diet, the, 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 the healthy fats. And I put in the, in the thread, and this is what I believe, that we are not suffering from a pandemic. We are suffering from a series of pandemics. And mm -hmm. each pandemic is making the next one worse. So we are suffering with an obesity pandemic. We are suffering with, and, and they are, by the way, these qualify as pandemics under the, under the definition, and they are referred to by the CDC as pandemics. We are suffering with an obesity pandemic. We're suffering with a di uh, diabetes pandemic, type two. And here's what we know. 90% of the people that are succumbing to COVID-19 are dealing with those diseases. In other words, yeah. we really just have a serious obesity and diabetes pandemic that the COVID virus is taking advantage of. Yes, that's exactly, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it, and you, I guess that's how um, part of the post, you know, was connecting um, the consumption of sugar and could that have something to do with what's happening with COVID, which you just laid out. And I just, I just wanted to connect those dots because that was definitely part of it and part of what had people so crazy with their responses and saying, sugar's not responsible for this, but there's a lot of things that are responsible. And I think that um, diet is obviously plays a key role. And those aren't things that people like we're just making up. I mean, the numbers are there and yeah. the the rates of, you know, diabetes and 
obesity and, um, you know, people with comorbidities, it's all right there. Those are, you can find those on any, uh, you know, credible website, including the CDC. So um, it's odd that there's so much pushback against that. And there's so much fear. It's odd that there's so much fear around this when the, the, the statistics all tell us from all of these credible sites that, you know, unless you're in less than 1% of the population, if you succumb to this, you'll recover. You'll, you'll, you'll be maybe uncomfortable to some degree, depending on, you know, certain factors, but you're going to be okay. So it's, uh, it's just, it's such a hot button topic. And I think uh, people are, have been whipped into such a state of frenzy and fear that some some sense of of logic and common sense just isn't factoring into a lot of people's willingness to consider what's going on and what they can do for themselves to you know manage and navigate through this weird phase that we're in um so i thought it was also interesting kind of back to how this whole this whole thing began with with sugar, um, you know, f fading the heat, as we would say, over to fat, making fat the bad guy, and and then you know sneakily coming up with, I don't know what is there like eighty different words for sugar now, and it's in everything. Um, but talk about um, back to you know carbs, especially um, uh, simple carbs. Talk a little bit about how the food pit pyramid was created. I thought that was really interesting because I didn't know that. And that's kind of pretty fascinating as well. I think people should know that. Yeah, that, uh, you know, the, the difficulty that we face these days is that um, before we even get to the food pyramid, let's just talk about food generally. So, you know, our, mm -hmm. our ancestors um, lived in nature and nature served food. And that food required a certain amount of effort to get, and it required the right cravings that were matched with your environment. You know, if you were craving fats or salts or what have you, you didn't have, you know, you wouldn't crave a brand because there was no such thing as brands, but you might crave a macro. And then somewhere along the line, some of our ancestors, somewhere between 10 and 30,000 years ago, started figuring out that you could actually stimulate, that you could influence the, the, um, the growing of, of, of things. You could develop agriculture. And, and, and what happens at that stage, I imagine, is something like this, is first of all, you, you probably largely grow the things that are easiest to grow, uh, of course. You know, there are yep. some crops that don't grow very well. And then also, likely, you probably grow things based on flavor. You know, you grow things that you enjoy, right? And, and before this, enjoyment was much um, healthier because the fact is, is that your um, pleasure senses were a match with the environment. So, you know, you, you, yep. if you ate something and enjoyed it, it was likely good for you. And if you, if you had a craving for something, it's likely because your body was actually asking for that thing. But the mm -hmm. minute we started messing with food production ourselves, we started saying, well, hey, wait a minute now, there's this thing that I'm craving, but it doesn't usually grow at this time of year, but I've now figured out how to get it to do that. Or, or I can grow so much of it that I can only eat that one thing that I really enjoy. Even at that stage, we started messing with it. We started kind of, you know, kind of causing mm -hmm. the problem. So, so then, you know, as that, and, and here, here's a, a great example of how it then moves to another level of people messing with what should be eaten is, if I remember the story correctly, the king of Prussia um, want, was, was concerned about having a monocrop culture where they basically were reliant upon wheat. And, um, and, and so if there was like a, a mold or if there, if there was a, a, you know, a plague or, you know, like locusts or something, then they'd lose the whole wheat crop and then they'd have wide scale famine. So he wanted to spread the risk. 
So he'd heard about these things called potatoes that, that you know, Sir Walter Raleigh had brought back some 400 years ago. And he's like, we should try to bring the potatoes in. But the funny thing about potatoes is nobody actually likes them. Like there are a few people who kind of think they like potatoes, but the truth is they like potatoes as a delivery mechanism for salt, sugars, cream, fat, <laughs> butter. Right. You know, the potatoes by themselves are not particularly enjoyable, especially raw. Boring. So like they tofu. couldn't get people to do it. And, and so the king was like, well, holy shit, how do we get people to do it? So basically what he did is he had outside the castle walls a, um, a, a compound constructed with guard powers and bad fences. And they planted huge potato crops and put armed guards up in there. And then he instructed the guards, don't stop people unless they're obvious. Like if they come right past the guard tower, stop them. But if they go in the gap between them where you reasonably didn't see them, then let them in. And of course, now the people are like, ooh, what's the king got? What's the king got? Now, before this, they're trying to foist potatoes on people. Nobody wants them. But now they're like the king's food. Now people are sneaking in and stealing them and part planting their own crops and potatoes become a thing. So food has been subject to manipulation from the minute we started controlling it ourselves. And then the minute we started controlling it ourselves, our taste buds betrayed us. And then economics began to betray us. So when you get to something like the food pyramid, you know, first you have to talk about the four food groups. Like how did the four food groups get created? They're ridiculous. They make no sense. They have no basis in evolutionary biology. But Kellogg's, he liked them a lot. He liked them a lot because they bought space onto the plate for grains that didn't really exist before. And so, you know, uh, uh, now you've got industry influencing these things and basically the same thing. I can't remember her name just now, but they hired a woman. I've written about it and I just can't, it's slipping my, my uh, memory for the moment. They, they hired this woman yeah. to come in and revise the, the food recommendations in America. And she goes through this whole process and then it has to get handed off for review. But of course, who do they have review it? They have the, the, they have the, uh, the USDA review it, which is basically the farmers. They have the food producers review this thing and they take her recommendations and turn them upside down. They, so she had a pyramid, but they turned the pyramid upside down based on her recommendations. And when she saw this, she said some 30 years ago, this, if you do this, you are going to cause a widespread epidemic of obesity and diabetes. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It... <laughs> It's uh, when you and and it's interesting too because over the over since that began the food pyramid has evolved and it's changed a little bit but fundamentally it's still so um, so not right for us it's just it doesn't promote good health it just doesn't it promotes it promotes food industries um, yeah. and that ne not necessarily is what is the best for us um, I, I think it's so interesting so I want to talk about um, I want to talk about wild fit and I want to talk about your time that you have spent uh, with the the tribes in Africa the the is it the Hadza, Hadza. is that how you say it Hadza yeah. So like what came first in Wildfit? Was that birthed from your time there or mm -hmm. did you, or was it the other way around? How did that happen? Well, Let's talk about that. People often think that. Um, no, what, my, my very short version of the story is, is that I, um, I went through a fairly significant health recovery when I was 21. Actually, you know, credit being due, it really was stimulated by Tony Robbins. I, I went mm, to one of his him. seminars and he did a, a health day and by the end of that health day, I sat down with a couple of my friends that worked for him and I agreed to do a 30 day challenge where I would okay. remove some things and add some things and change some things. 
30 days mm-hmm. later, I'd lost 35 pounds and all of my, like I had been suffering with a bunch of different ailments and they're all gone. I went from being consistently sickly and, and visiting doctors to vivaciously strong, fit and healthy. And it took 30 days. I was blown away. And, but then I watched all the people around me that also were at that program that didn't do it. And then I, and then a good buddy of mine, he came along and he was like carrying an extra 80 pounds and I showed him what to do. And I gave him the constructs and he did it for about three weeks, lost about 30 pounds and then relapsed and put the weight back on plus and kept gaining. And so I really was puzzled about why that was. And there's another side to this. And that is that my great grandfather discovered the Florespad skull, which is the oldest or up until recently was the oldest homo sapien skull ever found 259,000 years old. And so ever since I was a child, I'd had this um, very deep curiosity about what life must have been like for Florespad man. Like what, what was life like on a day? When, when did they get fired? When, when, you know, what was, what was food like? What was, what were, how did they parent? All these things were on my mind ever since I was 12. And then when this food transition happened and uh, I had this other curiosity from my childhood, I read an article by a guy named S. Boyd Eaton and he, in 85, in about 85, he wrote an article that suggested that there, that there was an evolved diet, that's, that, that humans should have an evolved diet. That, would, that was the, the catalyst for me. Incidentally, it was the same article that gave Lauren Cordain the, the, the impetus to come up with the concept of the paleo diet, same article. Hmm. And, um, and, and, and so that was the beginnings of WildFit. But you see, what, what I struggled with at that point is, first of all, Lauren Cordain, for example, is a doctor and you know 20 years older than me or what have you. And I was a kid and not a doctor. And, and I didn't really know what to do with this information. I felt like I was, on, I was standing on top of, the, of a goldmine of incredible information, but what, what right did I have to try and share it with the world? And, um, and, and also I, I started looking at books that were available and I realized like they don't work. In fact, I had this realization that if ever a diet book had ever worked, there wouldn't be any more, like we'd be done. But the fact is, yeah. is that they don't. And so I started trying to write a book, but then I was like, I don't want to just write another book. I want to figure out a way to actually help people. And the way that happened was about 10 years ago, um, I, uh, I was teaching business. I had toured, I, funny enough, in full circle, I got invited to teach business at Tony Robbins seminars. I had, it was the, you know, from 20, the weirdest circle completion. And here I am, yeah, you know, touring around awesome. with him. And, and that gave way to me being invited to do a lot of le- business lecturing around the world. And then a lot of my business clients would say, how do you live like this? How do you have all this energy? How do you not get sick? How do you not do jet lag? Like, and that's when I started I'm teaching it again. And, uh, but again, I got frustrated by this and that is, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot. We all have, here's what you need to do to fix the pain you're in, but then they don't do it. Like some basic changes, just do this stuff and everything will be different. And then they don't do it here. Here's why sugar is lethal and terrible and bad. And and then they keep eating it. And and so I decided to unpack all that. And I went into a very deep dive exploration into what we might now call food psychology and yes. try to figure out why it is that people ate the way they ate. And so 10 years ago, I, um, I started WildFit and that was almost identically at the same time that I coincidentally got invited to go uh, hunt, go look for um, Hadza Bushman the first time. And it wasn't easy to find him the first time. Like it was, a, it, I think we were crashing through the bush in East Africa with machetes and Jeeps for like, I don't oh know, a week God. or so. And then okay, we met so him. Pause, yeah. pause for one second. So yeah. You know, I'm going to ask you at some point to share a going rogue story. So is, is, I don't know. I just feel like going to find elusive Bushmen in Africa might be a going rogue story, or do you have something else in store for me later? You know, I, it, it, it's not that rogue. I mean, I was invited to do okay. it and, 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 
you know, I, I think that I, I have gone rogue a few times now where I've actually gone to live with them and, and you know, like, okay. which is quite a thing. Like, I don't take food yeah. with me and I'm, I'm, I'm living, you know, in their lifestyle. And that's, 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 that's a pretty, but I'll tell you that for me, the biggest going rogue was happening that same year. And that was when I made the decision to formally start coaching people when I had no credentials, I wasn't a doctor. I didn't, I, I mm. wasn't a nutritionist in the traditional sense of the word in any sense. I didn't have a piece of paper. I didn't have a little gold stamp. Um, and that to me was largely going rogue, rogue. And frankly, it freaked me out for a long time because I always knew that, it, you know, it, the worst, you know, if it didn't work, no big deal, but if it did work, then I'd get attacked. I'd get attacked yeah. for not having the, 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 the credentials and all that sort of stuff. And I remember yes. talking to um, a business coach and we, we were, we were doing quite well, like, you know, Wildfit was a little hobby business. I was doing very well teaching business, but, but hobby, uh, from a hobby perspective, Wildfit was doing very nicely, but I shared these concerns with this, um, with this business coach. And she was sort of like this intuitive business coach. And she goes, you've got to stop worrying about that. You, you may as well. It's either going to happen or it isn't going to happen. But she goes, I've seen the results you're creating for clients. And so it's only going to be a matter of time before doctors come to you looking for training. And the minute that begins to happen, then you're going to be able to let go of this. So you may as well just let go of it now. And I thought this woman is nuts. Like no doctors coming to me looking for training. Well, I can tell you now we have something like four or 500 coaches around the world. And I would say that something like 15 or 20 of them are medical doctors. A bunch of them are chiropractors. A lot of them are nurses. Like we, we, we have, um, uh, that's exactly what has happened. And that's because we get results. So that was probably one of the more rogue things that I've done in my life is actually making the decision to do this. And, um, and I'm grateful I did. You know, I'm so glad you said that because that I, I've I've been in that headspace even my, myself. I've been doing uh, health coaching for um, I don't know ten years, but but I've been doing it myself, living it for 35 years, my entire yeah. adult life, and so I've had I've had and even though I, I work with clients, I get results. But yeah, I'm not I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a dietitian, I'm not a doctor. So sometimes those things still kind of rattle around in your brain, going you know. Who, who am I? It's a little bit of that imposter syndrome, I guess. Um, I mean, I forge ahead anyway, but I can definitely relate. <laughs> yeah, I just do what I do, but I can relate to where your headspace there for sure. I had a really big turnaround moment and it went like this, that um, uh, there was a guy who signed up to do, do our coaching certification program. And so I got to know him and, and talk with him and it turned out that he was a doctor and that kind of surprised me. And, uh, and he has three clinics in Southern California. And basically, um, one day he's driving to work and he stopped off at Starbucks to get himself his coffee to keep him awake for the commute. That did not keep him awake. He drifted off to sleep and he ended up in a pretty serious car accident. Three days later, two days later, he's driving a rental car because his car's in the shop, stops off at Starbucks, picks up another large coffee to try to keep awake, falls asleep again, drifts off into the HOV lane. Luckily, nobody's hurt. But at this oh point, God. he's looking at his life and he's saying he's, he's a doctor, he's running three clinics, he's 40 pounds overweight, he's hypertensive, he's type two diabetic, and he's on five medications. And he basically was asking himself, why am I even a doctor? And yeah. he went to the internet that night and uh, he went to go talk to Dr. Google or something. But, but whatever happened, he ended up at one of my masterclasses with Mind Valley. And he watched the masterclass mm -hmm. and he said, something about this makes sense. So then he came into the masterclass, went through our 90 day uh, uh, wealth challenge, went through that process and lost 40 pounds, reversed his type two diabetes, reversed his hypertension and got off all five of the medications he was on. And he said that that breathed life back into him as a physician, the ability to actually turn things around instead of prescribing chronic medication to people for the rest of their lives. And, and, you know, at, at, at the point in time that that happened, I, I thought back to what that business coach told me and I saw, I saw it. 
Results are what matters. These days, you offer an opinion and some smart ass is going to come along and say, what's your credential for that? What's your yeah. thing for that? And the only answer that I'm going to be able to come up with for that is there are plenty of people with plenty of credentials that don't know a damn thing about what they're talking about. And, 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 and these days, results have to be the thing that matters. They have to be. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think Elon Musk has a degree in rocket science, as far as I can tell, but it seems to be working out okay. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it's so that's such a good point because you you can walk through, um, you can walk through any uh, doctor's office or a hospital or um, visit a whole bunch of um, health coaches, uh, social media, and you can see with your own eyes that they are not necessarily in the best of health. And you can see when you walk through the hospital that the staff, that they're not in good health. It's obvious. So, you know, all you have to do is look around and then decide who are you going to take health advice or guidance from. And I think um, to your point, and I'm sure this is a massive part of your program. um, If you don't, if you don't get people focused on their mental diet, whatever they start putting in their mouth is not going to have any long-term effect, which is why, you know, diets can't work. If you don't change what's going on up here in your head and your mental diet, the physical diet is only going to go so far and it's not likely to remain successful and you will revert back to what you've always done. So interesting. It is one of the okay. ways that we describe that to people is um, is that any diet that's predicated on your use on your long term use of willpower is destined to fail, and the reason is is that and and and, and it's funny because now there's this whole thing of, oh willpower doesn't work absolutely willpower works but it's a muscle that is targeted for a very specific purpose and and yeah. the best example I can give you for this is 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 willpower is the very thing that you use to hold your breath say for example if you're diving you know you use willpower to hold your breath you can use the willpower. But there will come a moment where the body will override the willpower because it believes that it needs to. And your body will do that even if you're underwater. It will force you to take an inward breath, even if you're underwater. So when people go on a diet using willpower, at some point, especially if they're doing some ridiculous calorie restriction rubbish, they're going to end up feeling like they're starving. Their body is going to take over and take an inward breath, in this case of a burger or something. But that, 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 um, that willpower dieting model has... I, I, it has done more damage than I can than I could measure. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's 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 not a solution. Uh, what do you think then about why why for WildFit for your program why why is it so successful? Why are your completion rates um, so high? What makes your program um, without you know obviously giving away things you don't want to give away, but no, what I, can I, you tell I, us about? Yeah, um, th- there, there are there are a number of things, and we, we don't have time to go through them all. But but I, yeah. I'll give you some some really good examples. Um, the one has to do with uh, a general ethos that I have about teaching that is different than the average teacher. The average teacher believes that it is on the student's shoulders to learn. The average teacher believes that it's the student's responsibility to learn. And I watched my upbringing and going through school, and I saw that I had a few teachers that took a, a different view, and their, their view was to make the information sticky, that they, they would do everything they could to do that. So when I design programs, I am, um, I'm always trying to design a program so that it pulls you through it. So you've, you've, I'm sure at some point in time, had to read a book where you had to push your eyes down the page, and then you've pushed your eyes across like three sentences, and then you realize you didn't even see them. 
right? Like right. It, it, yeah. it's, it's awful. On the other hand, yeah. I'm sure you've also read a book where you would skip meals for it. Like it's pulling you through. Yeah. Yes. So our programs are designed to feel like that. So we don't ever have somebody going, oh shit, I forgot to watch my next video. They're like looking forward to the next video. In fact, there's a bit of a running thing in our culture, in our community, where they get to the end of the program and the final, every, every week, I'm like, see you next week, see you next week. And the final video, and I go, and I won't see you next week. And people literally write to the help desk crying. They're like, oh, I want my video every week. So the, so engaging content, that's a very big, engaging, yeah. delivering content. That's a big part of it. it we are competing with Netflix, TikTok, uh, Facebook. We're competing with all of this attention grabbing. So that means that if we're going to deliver effectively, we have to be better than them. We have to, we have to deliver the content in a way that it's just not going to, they're not going to get lured off to some other cheap dopamine rush. They're going to, they're going to stay. Right. That's a big part of it. Another part of it is, is that there's, there are some very big misconceptions about the way diet works um, around, uh, um, around seasonality. People, even, even like people with tons of nutritional training, don't really understand that our ancestors evolved not only to survive seasonal fluctuation in nature, but to utilize them. And so each of the seasons that our ancestors went through, not only did we involve very specific psychological and physiological um, uh, traits to get through those seasons, we also took advantage of those seasons in a very, in a very um, opportunistic kind of way. A good example, an extreme example would be something like the season of winter, which wasn't snow and ice. It was sub-Saharan winter. It meant dry. It meant drought. It yeah. meant no water. It meant no food. It meant fasting. And so what's really fascinating is these days there's all this conversation about sugar and you know, burning, burning fat or burning sugar and all blah, blah, blah. But we also burn protein. And, 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 and this is generally by most fitness trainers seen as a bad thing. Oh, you don't want to burn your protein. You're working hard to create those muscles. You don't want to burn the protein. The body's smarter than that. And, and the best example I have for this is that if you and I were trapped in an old manor in Northern Europe, and it was minus 35 outside, and then the furnace died, we're, it's, the temperature of the manor is slowly going down. It's, it's, yeah. We're down to zero. Now the, the, the water in the pipes is frozen. It's now minus 10. We're, we're going to die. So what are we going to yeah. do? We're going to light a fire. First, we're going to build the firewood. We're going to burn the firewood. Call that the sugar and the fat. We're going to burn it. But when we run out of firewood, we're going to start burning the furniture, aren't we? But we're not going to go grab grandma's grand piano first. We're going to grab all the old broken stuff, the old picnic table that nobody ever used. We're going to burn that first. And the body does the same thing in what's called autophagy, right? When you go into that fasting mm -hmm. state, the body burns protein and it looks for the old useless, broken, diseased proteins and burns them. But look at the average person living, say, in America. They will never experience autophagy. <laughs> they just, they won't ever go through that. And so yeah. guess what? They're building up a huge, huge levels of toxicity. So that's another reason is that we guide people through those seasonal understandings. So it's not simply what to eat and what not to eat, but it's also recognizing that there's a pattern around that. And then the last piece, mm -hmm. and I know this is long, but the last piece is there are some very important um, uh, biochemical psychological considerations and I, i've got tons of them but i'll just give you maybe one of the best yeah. when you give somebody a rule and you say you cannot have this do not have this well the rebel inside them wants to break that rule it, it wants mm -hmm. to break that rule and traditionally what happens is they break that rule they eat that thing and then you shame them for it or they shame themselves for it but one way or the other yeah. they feel shame they broke they they failed Shame yeah. is a is what we call a craving trigger. So shame leads to food. Shame and guilt both lead to food. If somebody has too much shame, they will drug themselves with food to get rid of the shame. 
So shaming mm-hmm. somebody for making a mistake is just a terribly bad idea. So, so in, instead, what we want to do is recognize that when you say you can't have this thing, that here's what happens biochemically. Ooh, she says I can't have it. Lori says I can't have it. Lori says I can't have it. Lori says I can't have it. I'm having it anyway. I'm going to have it anyway. I deserve it. And this whole rebellion kicks up inside the body, which produces very nice chemicals, dopamine and serotonin. And you start feeling, you may as well be taking a little shot of ecstasy. Now, the trouble is because you've got these ecstatic drugs in your system, the food will actually taste better than it really is. It will actually Mm. taste better than it really is. And so now you'll eat it and it will taste better than it really is, which will anchor to the emotional state that you're having before you... And you're, you've now stepped off into the world of food addiction or lack of control. And so by understanding yeah. those mechanisms and, and, help, and helping people through them, creating um, consciousness for them, they, we, we, the best way I can describe this is that I'm sure you're familiar with Zumba. Yes. So, so one of my good friends is one of the founders of Zumba. He became a good friend because he did WildFit as a client. And after he got onto my calendar, when, when you founded a billion dollar fitness brand, it's pretty easy apparently to get on my calendar, I found out. He's on my calendar. Wow. And, uh, and so he, uh, he goes, Eric, we, you are about to do to the diet industry what we did to the fitness industry and I wanna help you do it. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, everybody's out there trying to find a diet they can stick to when you created a series of principles that stick to them. It doesn't take any effort. It doesn't, he goes, you know, and so a couple of months later, we're having a brainstorm about, who we st- what we stand for as a brand. And he's like, you know, Harley Davidson stands for rebellion and Coca-Cola alleges to stand for happiness. I would argue that point. But, but he says, yeah. what, does, what does WildFit stand for? And I said, freedom. And, and, you know, we talked about that. And he goes, that's a big word. That's a really big word to try to own. Like, it's a big, big word. And I go, well, it's what we are. The next morning, we're in a five-star resort in, in Jamaica. And we're sitting having breakfast. And this guy walks out of the buffet, walks up and he recognizes me. And, and, and it's so funny when people recognize you, you know, from YouTube or something, they always want to remind you who you are. Oh my God, you're Eric Edmonds. I'm like, oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> right. I appreciate the reminder. And he goes, I just wanted to come over and thank you. And I said, what for? And he says, I want to thank you for my freedom. And I look at Jeffrey. I'm certain Jeffrey put him up to this after the little chat. But I can tell right. from the look on Jeffrey's face, it is pure synchronicity. Jeffrey wow. does not miss a beat. Nobody thinks about brand better than Jeffrey. Jeffrey does not miss a beat. He turns to the guy, the guy's name is David. He says, David, what does freedom mean to you? And David goes, oh, I just walked through the entire buffet. And I suddenly realized that they didn't have cookies, donuts, croissants, and muffins. And that's really odd for a hotel like this. So I went back in and there they were, but I hadn't even seen them because they just mm. don't matter to me. That's freedom. He wasn't looking for them. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, and you got to have an I told you so moment. That's always fun. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's so funny you say that, though, um, about like, you know, food and and, you know, the emotional triggers, um, you know, whether or not you're giving yourself permission. We were uh, we were going to my husband and I and my my sister and brother-in-law were going to a, a matinee on, on Sunday. Nobody's been to a movie in forever. And I'm all excited because when I go to a movie, I'm like, I'm having candy and popcorn. That's when I get to have, you know, I love that. And my brother-in-law, who, you know, who's living with us right now temporarily is seeing me, you know, doing my normal, my eating lifestyle is like, you know, 85, 90% just really good food. And, um, 
and so when I'm all excited and I'm dancing around like a child at Christmas going, we're going to the candy store because I want to hit the candy store first. I don't want to buy my candy at the theater. I want to, if I'm going to have it, I want a better quality candy, of course. So and not I was paying 10 excited. times for what you need to. Exactly. It was going to be $30 of candy and not, you know, nine, but whatever. Anyway, so he was just so flabbergasted watching me like, you know, literally a kid in a candy store, um, all excited. And he's like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I mean, I can't believe you. What, what has happened to you? You've come over to the dark side. I'm like, dude, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm not a food Nazi. It's not about that. it's just, you know, it's not about denying yourself everything on the planet and only eating carrots. It's just, I think that's such a big misnomer that people have that they think that in order to have a healthy eating lifestyle, have a healthy diet, not be on a diet, it's just what you do. It's easy because it's so good. You don't even see the croissants in the donuts at the buffet, right? You just don't even see them because you're not looking for them. However, if you do want one, you don't feel like you've just, you know, done something that you have to feel shame about. It's, yeah. it's okay. It's right. It's, yeah, it's, it's the it, rules. It really is about freedom. When you realize that the biochemical response to food takes place before the food, like for example, even as you tell us the story about the popcorn and candy, you turn back into that little girl. You start producing the same chemicals in your body now and and, yeah. and and the food's not even present, which shows that it was never the food that made us feel good anyway. It was the emotional nostalgia, the permission, the rebellion, something. And, and yeah. so when we have consciousness about that, that you're absolutely right. What we say about freedom is this. Free, food freedom means you have the ability uh, in your life to eat what you want, as much as you want, whenever you want, without shame or guilt. And it also means the ability to not eat what you wish you wouldn't eat without any feeling of regret or missing out. And, and it's because as long as somebody's feeling regret and missing out, they're going to give into that. And so that, right. that's where the, that's where, you know, we walk right down the middle of that saying, yeah, of course you can, but, but you also then recognize, um, like, uh, I know, I know for some people, um, there are trigger foods that are going to turn into cascades. Like if they eat one cookie, yeah. they're going to eat 20. And when you start to yes. learn that identity about yourself, it's like, okay, so I know where I can express my freedom and where I would give away my freedom to do this. Right. That's a great way to put it, giving away your freedom. Because, you, yeah, yeah. If, if you don't have control, then you're not free. Yeah. It's, it's got control of you. It's so interesting. Um, what, what do you mean? I heard you talking. I don't remember what I was watching. Um, but I heard you talking about your theory called the evolution gap. Yeah, I'm writing about that extensively at the moment. Oh, okay. Tell so us a little snippet. The evolution gap is, is um, it, it's just a fancy way of saying that I believe that um, evolution is a very, uh, uh, very um, slow process. Uh, natural evolution by, by natural selection is a very, very slow process. Uh, you know, we are five or six million years in the making. You know, it, 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 it's not, it, it doesn't happen quickly. Sapiens only really came about, say, 250 or 300,000 years ago. And, and so it, it's taken a long time to get us here. Evolution is a very slow thing. And evolution generally happens um, in relationship with the environment because of natural selection. So, for example, um, somebody evolves it, through random mutation, evolves a trait. And if the, if the natural environment accepts that trait as advantageous, then that trait will end up getting passed on and, and you know, become, become part of the species over time. But it'll take 
many generations for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Richard Dawkins, uh, he wrote The Selfish Gene and, and, and some other fabulous books about evolution and the God delusion. And all that. He's an, an, an intellectual and very much today's Darwin. And he invented a term and the term is, was called a meme. He, he was the guy who created the word meme. And when he created the word meme, it was meant to be a um, metaphor uh, representing ideas or concepts in the social structure as a genetic, like as a gene. So basically saying an idea is born and that idea is either going to live or die based on natural selection. And here's an ironic thing, uh, you know, a, a sort of ironic twist, I suppose. And that is that many of the people in, in his world um, shot this idea down, the science of memology, and basically, you know, said it was pseudoscience and it didn't, it didn't really, it didn't really, it, it was a bad example, right? They, they didn't like it. But what's really crazy is the word meme is now fully accepted into our, our world. Um, it, it, is, it is massively accepted into our culture, but it also doesn't mean what Richard Dawkins originally intended for it to mean. It has now been co-opted by children to discuss, to, to refer to the little, you know, little images with sayings and stuff. I mean, they're sharing memes. But here's the twist of that. That is proof that Dawkins was right from the beginning, that it is like a gene. It, it mutates, and if the mutation is adopted, then, then, then it will change into a new species in a sense. And, and so the evolution gap accepts that a gene change kind of works like this. An animal's born, it has a mutation. If that mutation is advantageous, that animal might have a breeding advantage and will pass that gene on to the next generation. And then that might have four children. And then those four children pass it on to another three children. And it's going to take thousands of years for that genetic mutation to make its way through the population. Thousands of years. But a meme is different. I can, for example, figure out the bow and arrow and I can tell my brother about it. And then he can tell his friend about it and they can tell their friend about it. And so my meme can spread across the entire human race in my generation and then go to the next generation. So that means that what would take thousands of years genetically can happen in years, in very short number of years, mimetically. So, so, what, so, so that's the evolution gap. The evolution gap is that our pace of change, of our social change, our technological change has accelerated so quickly that it's outpaced our genetic evolution. And as a concept, as a consequence, we are now living in a, in a structure in a technological structure, in a social structure, in a food delivery structure that is not a match with our genetics. And almost all, I would put to you, that almost all of the pain and suffering and anxiety and stress that's suffered by humans today stems from that. Game. All right, everyone, we are out of time for today. So we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, make sure to check back next week and listen to part two with Eric Edmeads. So for today, thank you all for hanging out with us. Um, please make sure to give us a rating and review that always inspires other people to listen to all of the good shift being shared here. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on that note, stay feisty, my friends, stay healthy and go make some epic shift happen in your lives. You too, Gary V.